Alex, where did you go? I got it. <clears throat> okay, cool. You need to unmute yourself now. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, that took me a minute. <laughs> I know it's like it's it's a uh, it's easy. It's easy enough to use. You'll get the hang of it. Yeah, no, I'm excited. It's kind of like Clubhouse. Okay. <laughs> uh, it it is it is better because like we actually don't have trolls to come to interrupt us. So it's uh it's actually like a, a brain holiday. No, absolutely. No, this is cool. I'm very excited. So yeah. So officially, I would like to welcome you to Disruptive, my lovely podcast that normally I'm I'm doing with Sarah, but um, she's not online, so she's going to be the both of us for today. Um, and I think that look, I'm going to let you do most of the speaking um, because you definitely know, you know, your way around your own. And I really would like you to first of all give us a lay of the land as far as. Um, you know, the opposition parties are concerned so that, you know, listeners could really understand what is going up in Iran um, and what we're up against in terms of the regime. And also to have a little chat on developments on the ground right now in, uh, you know, in certain regions of Iran where I believe we're witnessing like a kind of a pre-revolutionary era. So I think things are moving um, in the right direction as far as the regime toppling goes. I don't think that anyone has the argument for the regime. So I'm just going to assume that people listening to us understand that, you know, um, the regime in Iran needs to go and absolutely has to go, regardless of what comes after, but they need to go. Um, so, yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to let you um, educate us, if you please. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's truly an honor. Uh, my name is Alex Kennedy. I'm an activist uh, from Iran. Uh, I am someone who has been fighting for freedom in Iran for a long time. Uh, I guess, you know, the introduction I started with is, um, you know, I was uh, a young person in high school. I was graduating high school. This was 2009. And I was part of the generation that was uh, grew up with the green movement. And uh this was a really uh, big factor for a lot of people my generation, especially the millennials, because um, the election was a big was a big deal. It was a big deal for a lot of people. We were eighteen um, and nineteen, graduating from you know high school or just university. Um, but you know, I'm diaspora. I live in the United States. But the thing is, is that this is a huge deal for the Iranian community because they had a guy named uh, Mustavi who. Uh, was a reformist, but the reformers talked a good game. They said they want to uh, uh, curtail some of the restrictions, give women the opportunity to not wear the hijab and move in a secular kind of direction. And a lot of people like me back in that day uh, bought it hook, line, and stinker. And this was the first term of Barack Obama. Uh, so it was a huge change uh, in the world during that time. Um, and then the protest happened. You know, we knew Ahmadinejad was a blatant anti-Semite. Um, he was horrible as president. And uh, people like me and a lot of other Iranians growing up, just starting out to be adults, were, uh, you know, uh, experiencing that change. And Musavi was sp spoke a good game. But here's the thing. We didn't know what reformists were. Uh, before my generation, it was uh, Khatami. And during his time, everything in Iran was a little bit okay, but it wasn't great. There were still arrests. There were still 
tyranny, but the tyranny was a little bit curtailed and a lot more freedom was lax because of that. But unfortunately for me, my activism started when um, the 2009 Green Movement uh, protests happened. And it was the biggest protest since the 79 revolution, especially in Tehran. And uh, for me, it was uh, when Neto Sultan died. When Neto Sultan died, that's when everything changed. And when I mean everything changed, this is when I got very active in the, in the activism movement. Yeah, can you... Can you, tell, can you tell listeners a bit more about this? Because, I mean, I know that her name is very well-known in certain circles, obviously, um, but I'm not sure that everybody will, will remember. Uh, so can you can you explain exactly, like, you know, how she died and why it was so profoundly, not telling of the nature of the regime, but I think that any notion that people had that Iran was interested in allowing, uh, you know, pluralism um, and, you know, the right for people to uh, to disagree was shattered. Yeah, um, the reason she was important, because most and foremost, she was, she was a uh, young woman. She was a very beautiful woman, and um, she was innocent. She was a former college student. Um, I mean, her story speaks for herself. She was a patriot, but the way she died is just the most grotesque thing. And, and you got to understand, um, there have been people who have been executed even before her. But I guess the best way I can describe her is that she was she is now the face of what is now currently the women's movement in Iran. The White Wednesdays, the uh, video, the social media age. She was the first known uh, Iranian woman that I think of um, that was on national TV where they showed her death. And the way she died is that the, the, the regime were on helicopters in Tehran. And uh, they were sniping people. And for whatever reason, they decided they wanted to snipe her. And unfortunately, they shot her. And they shot her and they killed her. And because of that, um, her sacrifice is a metaphoric way of showing that um, she sacrificed herself for the cause. And to me, um, her spirit cannot be broken. And that's what I think represents and why she's so important in circles. It's not just because she died. It's also because she was a woman. And women in Iran are so educated and are so passionate about what they believe in. And you got to go back even further, Catherine. When the revolution happened and these mullahs decided they wanted to ban the hijab, or they wanted to enforce the mandatory hijab, the women came out and protested. They protested, but unfortunately... It was null and void. So that's why it was important. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Um, I just have a question for you, like when it comes to um, to the green movement, because I had many discussions with people about, you know, the nature of the reformists, what is it that they want, truly want, as opposed to what it is that they say, because sometimes in Iran there's a gap. Um, and some people, and it's to some extent, I think I believe them, that, that um, reformists were kind of the controlled opposition where I feel the regime wants, you know, understood that they need to create a space to give the impression of a push back against the deep state um, and, you know, this Islamic revolutionary idea and to architect, you know, an opposition that would not really be an opposition, not, not in, um, in the challenge of the nature of the regime, but rather to kind of... Um, you know, advocate for the world and claim that, oh, you know, change is coming to Iran that, you know, you might be able to live with, you know, to kind of see how the rest of the world will respond to something like this. I don't know. It's it's my impression. I mean, I may be completely off, but it's just, it doesn't sit right with me. This whole green movement, 
was kind of, uh, I don't know, I feel it was architected and it was kind of, uh, people were set up, you know, maybe to some extent to see who was opposed to the regime and to kind of, uh, you know, cleanse the ranks, so to speak. I don't know what you think about that. No, I agree. Look, um, to me, the Green Movement, I will keep saying this, I'll say this in on this show, that the Green Movement was orchestrated by the hardliners. Why do I say that? Number one, who was Mousavi? He was the last prime minister of Iran. He was part of the revolution when they took over and uh, delegated this tyranny. Number two, why is it all of a sudden that when Khatami took power, they were so threatened by that? You know, this guy actually, and I'm not defending him. I'm just saying a lot of people saw Khatami as this role model of this quote-unquote moderate uh, regimer. Um, he spoke a good talk, but the problem is the reformists are the same people because you got to understand Rouhani was elected. He was the last president before Raisi took over and Rouhani put more people in jail than Ahmadinejad um, and Khatami combined. So the reformists, unfortunately, are still that you could call them the left wing of the regime. They're the liberals of the regime. The problem is, Catherine, is that we don't want that anymore. We had that experiment, and that's what it was. It was a failed experiment in the Green Movement. A lot of people got killed, and um, a lot of people got thrown into prison. The hardliners under Ayatollah Khamenei rule with an iron grip. When Khafami was president, believe it or not, Qasem Soleimani, the, the the, the biggest terrorist that I can think of, um, threatened Khatami and said, if you go through with these reforms, we will arrest you. There's no such thing as a reformist movement in Iraq. Um, and currently, you because of Mosavi, there's a, there's a, I call it a cult. There's a group of people who legitimately think that that is the solution, is to keep the regime name, but call it a republic. But it's going to, it's a liberal version of the same thing. So, okay. You want to take the hardliners out of power. But what, what's going to happen after that? You put someone in who speaks about uh, removing mandatory hijab, who speaks about giving more freedom and opportunity. The problem is Iranians do not want this anymore. Okay? It was a failed experiment. And quite frankly, I could say it was it was a conspiracy against us. It made us look very bad. And it gave the regime even more further control than it did before. Well, yeah, because it kind of, I think in my mind, it kind of sets you back at least like a good decade. And I mean, you can see the result of this because people, I think, I think the way, the way that the regime, in my mind, imagine that, you know, the, um, the green movement and, and this controlled opposition is that they were thinking, okay, if we give people, you know, hopes and, you know, we, we talk to them about reform or whatever, number one, we're going to see who's truly against the regime and they're going to have to kind of, you know, um, put themselves forward so we can identify who is the enemy of the state or the regime. And number two, um, you're going to create so much distrust and mistrust within the population in that they're going to be thinking next time that someone comes around and say, I want to lead a movement, I want to change things on the ground. They're not going to trust that person because they could. They would be thinking, is it controlled opposition? Are they sincere? Are they genuine? Are they really going to, going to do what they say they're going to do? Because they've been lied to so many times. Um, and it's, it's generating this toxicity within the, the political discourse. And I think that so far, unfortunately, the regime has been very successful in architecting that 
you know, this sense of hopelessness amongst the Iranians that, you know, no one is there to kind of lead the show as far as, uh, you know, um, reforms are concerned and, and, you know, revolution and a change, a complete change of the regime. In my mind, this is how this is how I understood it, you know, from the outside. So obviously I'm not Iranian, so I can't speak for them. Um, but this is how I kind of um, I look at the, the situation and thinking, you know, this regime is evil in the way that the the engineering consent, they are playing with people's lives on such um on such a level that it's 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 actually beyond criminal. For me, those are crimes against humanity, where you you enslaving people and forcing onto them like this um you know subservience to everything that they say. And it's um I don't know. For me, it's uh, it's just one of the great catastrophe of history. You know, Catherine, I don't want this to be sensitive, but I'm going to say it for what it is. You know, um, uh, I've been on Clubhouse for a long time. I've been in this activism for a good over, especially the Clubhouse, for about two years now. Okay, that's not a long time, but I've been doing activism for a long time. Uh, I will tell you, and this is just in the community itself, they call this regime the new Nazi regime, a genocidal, religious, fanatic, um, murdering regime, okay? Um, They are ethnically cleansing all of us. Um, This regime was built on the backs of the deep state here in the United States, Europe. Uh, Khomeini is not even Iranian. Uh, He is Indian of descent because of his father, these people are not Iranian and they put these occupiers into our land. They try very hard and they have failed miserably to erase our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, they try to say that uh, we're not Iranian. We are Islamic. We are an Ummah. We are all Muslim. And the way they, they say it by that is if you convert from Islam into Christianity, like I did, they will kill you. They will absolutely hang you in a public square in Tehran. Uh, if they find out that you know you're what you're describing, do you know what you're describing is actually what you're describing is actually um, uh, cultural Marxism. Yes, which yeah, is interesting. Absolutely, because absolutely. because I would like I would like people to they don't have to agree you know with you and I on this, but I just would like them to consider the possibility that you know this Islamic revolution that we keep talking about and this uh, toppling of the Shah actually was not and was more coup d'etat, you know, um, imagined in the corridors of powers in Moscow under Soviet Russia. And that this whole exercise sounds, and, you know, you know when they say, like, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck, you know, quack like a duck, uh, it probably is a duck. Uh, it sounds a lot like, you know, um, you know, Marxism, at least in the way that it's formulated. The language is different because obviously Marxism is very anti-religion. Um, but at the same time, if you look at what, the Islamic regime has done to its people is not too is not too far removed from what you know Lenin and Stalin did to their own people. So I think no, it's an interesting. I agree idea. with you. No, absolutely. Look, they they started in the uh, labor movement strikes, and this was not an Islamic revolution. I'm so sick and tired of people calling it that. They only yeah. call it that because these mullahs took it over. This was a cultural. Marxist revolution. Mm-hmm. It was run by the MKO, which is now known as the Mujahideen El Khan. They were the ones that started striking. They were the ones who were shooting at people. They were the ones that even 
through the conspiracy that the Shaw locked people in the Rex Fire Cinema incident that started all of this. This yeah. is this was a absolutely disgusting campaign by the Russians, by Americans, the Democrats, and Deep State. The reason they did this because they knew that, that we were a threat. And what, what do I mean by that? They knew that Iran was about to be a top five world economic power under the Shah. The Shah said by the year 2000, we will be number three, close to number two as a superpower. And they didn't like that. The people in the deep state in the West did not like that. And they took that as a threat. And they started funding these Marxist groups, uh, the two-day party, the uh, Mujahideen al-Khalq, run by the insane Rajavi cult is what I call them. They oh, yeah, terrorists. they're called. They're called. They're yes. not even, I, I'm sick of people actually, um, you know, labeling them under the term opposition. They're not an opposition group. They, they're not even a group or a movement. They're just like straight up cults. They're not, it's, they're, it's, uh, you know, cult of the personality. Yeah. Uh, it's almost, it's almost, um, it's a weird religion that they have. It's, uh, and I don't understand why, for example, a country such as France is still allowing them to have, you know, self refuge, you know, refuge in France. It's insane. Because, because, so those people because are French... the worst of terrorists. I mean, yeah, well, for me, well, they the... like, you know, straight up from the books of ISIS and the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Is they Absolutely. know better. Absolutely. Uh, it's because the French did not like the Shah either. I mean, let's just be blunt. They, well, uh, look, historically speaking, the French are not, you know, are not looking kindly, you know, uh, upon democracy. So, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, upon monarchies. Right. So I think it has a lot to do with that. There's a, I think there's a fear in France that, you know, monarchies is almost like a virus that you could catch. Um, and so they're very distrustful of that kind of, uh, you know, setup. Um, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe maybe also because France has a, a very socialist kind of tradition. Um, I think the Shah bothered um, bothered Paris a great deal in terms of they didn't understand what it was on about. Well, it, it's hilarious because the Shah actually did socialist reforms and people don't even know. That. I know. But the problem is, I think that people um, I think he was very, very much misunderstood in terms of his reforms Absolutely. and how he was carrying them out. And, and the, here's the problem, too is that people judge him on reforms that were kind of like half done. They did not, it was interrupted. So they did not, they didn't see, he had a vision. Uh, and because he was the Shah and because he had, you know, absolute powers in Iran, um, you know, he was, he, he basically had enough um, free reign to move as quickly as he wanted. And I think that's the problem. I think his, his mistake was that he didn't sell and communicate his vision you know, to Iranians, because I think that if he had done that, people would have caught on and actually understood what he was trying to do. Um, and I think that's the mistake he made, in my mind. I may be wrong. Um, but in terms of his reforms and where he was going, uh, he would have completely transformed, the, you know, not just Iran, but the Middle East as a whole, completely. Um, dynamic would have been so different. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. I think that that is... It was a misunderstanding, um, but it also did not help when you have the Marxist communists arrested by him. You know, um, he did not believe in communism. Uh, I, I firmly believe Soviet Union was behind it. I firmly believe the West was behind it. And why do I say the West? It's because it's a conglomerate of countries. It's not just the United States. Jimmy Carter was the orchestrated face of, of the despot takeover by these mullahs. Jimmy Carter is in the Iranian community. Well, Joe Biden's going to take the cake now as one of the worst presidents in, in, in United States history. Uh, he was anti-Shah. He did not like the Shah. 
Uh, and he did not like the way how the Shah made him look embarrassed in front of the world stage. And the Shah was a brilliant leader. He was a visionary and uh, he believed in his people. And uh, the Shah was too kind. And, you know, he, he, when the revolution happened, they would, they, they told him, if your majesty, if you want to keep your power, you need to shoot at people. The Shah said, absolutely not. I would rather leave in, in, in grace than leave and become a dictator because the narrative and the people, they want that. And because of that, you know, the Shah didn't really do anything after that. He just let it happen. Unfortunately, he gave the regime to Bakhtiari, you know, as, as a, as a temporary government. Um, but I want to explain to the people on the show that the Shah of Iran was not a dictator. The Shah of Iran was a visionary. He was our king of kings. He was Ahri Amer, you know. Um, and, and, you know, in my belief, I think that he was the greatest patriot since King Cyrus. Why do I say King Cyrus? Because modernly, he gave women women's rights. He gave Iranians free education. He built roads. He built hospitals. He built, um, you know, uh, infrastructure that, believe it or not, Catherine, to this day, we're still using. Uh, the Mullahs can't even believe in infrastructure. Um, the Shah of Iran believed in his country and was a secular. And, and in an interview, he said himself, he's like, I'm the true Muslim. I believe in peace and God. And but these people are here for profit. And he was talking about the current Mullahs who have now occupied us today. These people hmm. are bloodthirsty savages and villains. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. And that's why I believe in the crown prince, but that I, I want to rate to that topic that, you know, there is a lot of, uh, opposition people, you know, um, they hate this regime. They thought in my previous generation, my parents' generation, they thought the revolution was a good thing. They thought that, you know, we were going to get a democratic movement, a secular government, and that's what it was in the infancy. But then guess what happened? The MEK and then the Mullahs got together. They got rid of the Shah. And then Khomeini just hijacked and then slaughtered them all. That's exactly it. was a Clower and Piven strategy. Um, even the Mullahs had it from day one. You know, uh, the ridiculous referendum, which was absolutely rigged from the start. Um then, you know, right into the month after the Islamic Republic was proclaimed, the women were out in the streets because of the mandatory hijab law. I mean, you got to really look at the complacency and the cultural um, complications of our country now. And 44 years have passed. It's the year 2022. A lot has changed. Um, I say I started my infancy and my activism when Ned Sultan got murdered. Um, there's a lot that's happened, you know, 30,000 people got murdered by Raisi, the current incumbent occupier in Iran right now. Um, a lot of people now look at him as the successor to Khamenei, the way he is dressed, the way he is talking, the way he became a, uh, you know, a supposed new successor, you know, that's what's happening. But here's the thing. Um, the people in Iran are not fools anymore. They are seeing it for what it is. They are seeing the vision of a new and free and democratic Iran. And, you know, we have the crown princess parties. Can I say that plural? Uh, we have people who believe in a republic. Um, you know, we got people like Fakhravar. Um, if those oppositions got together and in a united organizational front and deterred the narrative of these mullahs, uh, it would be game over, you know. 
And I will tell people who even listen to this that internet is a very privileged thing for us because these mullahs didn't have the bright idea that when you put internet to us 20 years ago from now and now we still have internet now they're trying to censor us it's not going to work you know you've already let the genie out of that bottle um i mean Khamenei wants to be like kim jong-un he wants absolute power dictatorship um and that's why he's called the supreme leader but yet we supposedly have a president and a foreign minister but you got to understand, these people never wanted a republic. Khomeini did not want a republic. He wanted a Muslim-style uh, governing uh, body. He wanted an Ummah, and that's why they export the religion. They export the religion and have proxies mm-hmm. all across the Middle East. Well, he wants want to be, to, uh, in my mind, yeah. he wants to be the Grand Khalif of Islam, and that, you know, he... He wants to not only rule over the, the the Shia Muslim world, but to an extent, you know, the Sunni Muslim world and absorb it into his ideology. That's that's what they want ultimately. Uh, which I think, you know, why this is why I think you know Saudi Arabia is pushing so much against them. It's not just uh, it's not the religious element of it, you know, Shia versus Sunni. I think it has a lot to do with control and geopolitics. Because I think that, you know, Iran's Islamic, I mean, its revolutionary idea is actually um it's it's colonial at its core. And they want to they want to colonize the rest of the um, no that's just the region by the way but they want to bring the world to hit to kneel to them. They want to export the revolution. What what is the revolution? Mm-hmm. It is Velayatafaki. It's the true jurist. Uh, they want to export that style of thinking across the globe. Uh, they've already done a destructful job of controlling the Middle East. I mean. The only country that really has stood up to this dictatorship is Israel. And look at our narrative now. Israel is the apartheid state. No, the the dictatorship in Iran is the real apartheid state. All mm-hmm. of the problems we are seeing in the world in the Middle East right now, all the all the terrorist attacks, all of the um, attempted uh, assassinations, all of the extortion. Um, we're having this crisis with the thug that is Hamid Nouri. And now what is what's happening? The regime is now taking Swedish citizens and kidnapping them for ransom. The regime has done this for 44 years, Catherine. This is nothing new. And I've said this in other platforms. I'll say it here. They will kill their descendants. If you're in their way, they will get rid of you. They got rid of Fereidun Farabzadeh, the singer who was a well-known singer uh, before the revolution in Iran. They killed him. They killed Bakhtiari after the regime took over uh, in 79. They killed him in Germany, in France. I mean, these people are not human beings. These people are evil. They are mafia criminals, and they're backwards, illiterate mullahs. They've taken a country with such rich traditions, with such rich history, and have taken it and turned this into a Muslim ummah. Which, by the way, Catherine, you know this, and, and but if anybody who listens, Iran was never a Muslim country. So, you know, they brought Islam into our shores. And now I know that's going to uh, make a lot of uh, Muslims who are not from Iran angry. What do I mean by that? We were never Muslim, okay? There's a reason why uh, Arabs brought that to our shores. They started the caliphate, the real caliphate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they brought it to Iran. Iran was a Zoroastrian and, and was a, a different culture, different society, 
And we were the Persian Empire. We've ruled, but we've ruled with fairness. We didn't rule with an iron fist. And that's why people in the Middle East, especially on the Persian Gulf countries, they get very angry at Iran because they, they can't see the reality of that. But unfortunately now, this regime, people now think that we are the most evil entity on the planet because they think all Iranians think like this. I, I just, I cannot um, resonate and imply that and it's not the people of Iran, it's the regime. That's why I call it the dictatorship because I, I will not give them credit and call themselves Iranian. They are not Iranian, Catherine. These people are monsters for what they did to my family, uh, for what they did to Neda Sultan, to Navid Afghari, uh, countless other uh, innocent civilian blood that's been shed because of these uh, uh, demons. And that's what they are. They use Islam as a tool to subjugate the masses. And if you don't subjugate to that narrative, they kill you. Okay, They come to your house, they kidnap you, They'll throw you in the worst God, God knows prison in Evin, and you just disappear, and, and nobody knows what's going to happen. I mean, this um, regime is a Nazi r- regime. They are Hitlerian in their thinking. And Khomeini, I, I would say Khomeini is the Middle Eastern Hitler. Uh, Khamenei is, is the dictator. You know, these people who use Islam to dictate to people like me who are not even Muslim, um, that you have to be Muslim, that you have to follow this lifestyle. And if you don't, we will come and kill you or uh, kidnap you and throw you in prison. And you, you, you probably already know this, Catherine. The prison conditions of women and, and people like me who are Christian, it's barbaric. It's barbaric. It's third class, second class. I know. Um, you know, I know, and unfortunately, it's, it's not it's not talked about. You know, it's uh, it's really funny. I think the rest of the world, you know, look looked upon Iran, and they have this uh, this impression of uh, you know homogeneity when it comes to religion. They, you know, they think that everyone in Iran is Muslim, and they they get so surprised when they realize that no, you know, you have Jews, you have Jews in Iran, you have Christians in Iran, you have you know you have Baha'i in Iran, you have many different you know religion, uh, religious communities. But unfortunately, those communities, which are you know the minority. Um, are, are living under a dictatorship that did not that basically forfeited their lives on the on the basis of their differences. That's what happened in Iran, and and the regime is so um, you know radical in its view in its Islamism um, that it doesn't even allow for communities to be represented in the sense that they don't exist as far as they're concerned. Um, and and the rest of the world kind of like you know. Um, agreed with them and say yeah okay so we from now on we're just going to believe that you know iran is just 100 percent muslim it's not the case it's not the case um but it's very difficult to kind of cut through the the regime propaganda when they have so many echo chambers well unfortunately catherine the they are a threat um you know the way i could describe uh this regime is hydra okay it's hydra you cut one person off, another snake's yeah. head's going to come out of it. Yeah. Um, they, they, they are exporting the religion across even in the United States, even in the Western world as we speak. They have groups like NIAC, the National Iranian American Council. You know, it sounds good on paper. Oh, this is a good opposite. No, they are, they are people like uh, Negin Mortazevi, Negin Mortazevi. Uh, people like Trina Parsi, people like Sina Tusi, all these people, Farnos Basi, these people are regimers. They are traitors. 
Um, they speak, they talk like reformists. Again, reformists, and they have this idea, oh, the people of Iran are suffering because of the U.S. sanctions. And, and, and what's so disgusting is that you look into that history and they have regime ties, they're reformists. And then you have people like Ali Vayez, who, who is the Iranian director of Crisis Group, who has ties with Rafsanjani, who was one of the pillars of uh, the revolution. You know, um, that is what's sad. And that is what's so complicated is that they have a reach of influence. They have funding. Um, because of these front organizations like the Quincy mm-hmm. Institute, like Statecraft, like Crisis Group, um, they they come on this notion and try to say that uh, the JCPOA is benefiting; it will benefit Iranians. The the Iranian community is suffering because of these sanctions by the United States. It's always anti-American, but yet these people we call them Alazades, you know, in my language. These people have robbed our resources, have plagued and robbed Iran's wealth and sent their kids to schools here in the United States and Europe and abroad. But yet they live off of our suffering. And why do I say that? Because the mullahs, their kids, they're wearing clothing brand like Gucci and Prada and, and Louis Vuitton. They wear the top of the dollar uh, stuff, luxury lifestyles. But yet in Iran, the majority of people are now literally living nothing. There's nothing left in Iran. I mean, when a freaking loaf of bread costs 15,000 tomans, which is the equivalent of 75 US dollars for a loaf of bread. That's, and insane. Absolutely. That's absolutely insane to me. But it's just, um, in a way, in a way, I, I think that the regime too is um, is kind of eating itself out because, look, if you look at the suffering that the people have to to uh, to undergo every single day, where life has become you know uh, unbearable for Iranians right now, um, you know, the you know socioeconomic parameters are just you know catastrophic. Uh, like you said, seventy five dollars for a loaf of bread is just insanity to me. Um, don't you think that they're precipita- precipitating their own downfall? You know, by the fact that they they're looking upon their people as uh, you know basically slaves, uh, not caring for their welfare whatsoever. I mean, they're cracking down right now. You know, they're picking up, um, you know, uh, labor activists. You know, um, who you know who organize you know around unions um, because they actually have you know the audacity to actually demand that their salaries be paid. You know, as civil servants, for example, they're being picked up in the street and thrown in jail, tortured, their family threatened. Um, you know, it's 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 being repeating across the country. Um, so now we're seeing, you know, slowly, slowly, we we start to see like there's there's um the beginning of an uprising. So I don't want to I don't want to scream victory too early, um, because I think it'll be a mistake. But that said, you cannot shy away from the fact that things are getting so terrible in Iran that people have no other choice but to rise up. And, and I think that in a way, I don't want to say it's a good thing, but at the same time. I think that Iranians have realized that for all the fears that they had in terms of what the regime could do to them, should they not, you know, abide by the rules, there is nothing that the regime hasn't done to them already. And then now their backs is so far against the wall that there's literally only way, you know, there's only way to go and it's forward because backwards they can't, they've done it. They've done it for 44 years and there's no more room. So don't you think that in a way, 
you know, the, the regime's um, devolution into this, you know, toxic, toxic theocracy um, is actually, in a way, playing into um, the real revolutionary movement and actually, you know, pushing people to rise up, uh, you know, organically. Because to some extent, I think the opposition has failed to get organized properly and give people a sense of direction. So I can see so, people not taking matters into their own hand and saying, um, you know, we don't know what is it that we want, but we know what we don't want. It's the regime. So it's a very good question, Catherine. Um, I will put it into three parts. Number one, um, the people are done with this regime. That is a fact. Um, Gamal Institute. A recent survey that just came out last month, put it this way, 75% of the people do not want this regime anymore. Independent study. That's number one. Um, again, it, Iran is a 85 million population of a country. Um, half of that population is um, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z. We, are, we have a thriving generation that's young. Um, unfortunately, this is all they know is that, um, that this dictatorship has been in their life th since they were born. Number two, um, the, the future of Iran is very bright. Uh, we're very educated people. Um, we have tit for tat in the Middle East, the most college educated group of men and women who don't have a job. And what, what I say that is that you can graduate, but you don't have a job. So they're educated in their field of mathematics and science and chemistry. And Oh, you have. Uh, I mean, look, I know I know yeah. people with several PhDs, not just one, several PhDs, and they are driving cabs in Tehran. It's insane. Right. And, I'm not, and I'm not, I don't have anything against cabbies, but it's just to show you that you could be, you know, the most educated person in Iran, and it's it doesn't matter. It's not, you know, people in academia are not valued by the regime at all. And I think to some extent they pose a threat. It, it is a threat because here's the problem. Here's here's the thing, Catherine. Um, what you're seeing in Iran, okay, let's just uh, – let's. this is part two, what I was trying to get with. The generation is young people. It's the youth. The youth is the future of this country. They – this is why I came back earlier when I said they should have cut the internet off uh, from the beginning because these mullahs did not cut the internet off from the beginning and now they're trying to do it now. That genie's already out of the bottle. Why do I say that? Um, they went back and used VPNs to look at who ruled Iran before these uh, uh, demons came into power. And who ruled Iran? It was Riza Shah. It was uh, Mohammed Pahlavi. Mm -hmm. um, they look at what Iran used to be. They look at, they have parents who lived during the time of the Shah, like my mother. Uh, when the revolution happened, she was 15 years old. She was a teenager. Um, it, it was... Uh, captivated to her you know it, it detrimented us um because of that and then because of social media because of technology um the internet if they're trying to censor it now people already know they know who the shah is they know who the crown prince is they know who our leader is he is the true leader um that genie's out of the bottle uh so if the regime's now trying to play clean up by censoring us it's not going to work uh number three um Gamal Institute, one in seven Iranian right now is not even um, Muslim. They're atheist. They're turning away from religion because of this regime. Um, 
people that is so interesting i really want people to listen to this because again you know people have this impression of iran you know of uh, iranians being you know ultra religious it's not true it's a projection by the regime but it's simply not a reflection of reality no no they're turning away from religion um they want to be secular uh that is the talk of the town they want a secular government um they don't want anything to do with religion and, and rightfully so 44 years of occupation and dictatorship um and at the same time Catherine, uh the thing that's very scary and this is the beautiful part is that you know the teachers the nurses the firefighters the laborers the college students the ordinary working blue collar person they're all coming together and protesting this is not just uh one little sporadic thing that's happening in Afghanistan right now. This is not something, uh, you know, everybody, when it comes to the economy, um, we talked about the green movement and what the, it was a big deal, but it was the right mess. It was the wrong message. But 2017, not, you know, we say 98 protests. We're talking about 2017 when Auburn happened, where they, this, this so-called uh, regime, decided to shoot down 1,500 compatriots. But yet, it's more than that. It's about 5,000 people who lost their lives. And a video that I just made literally put clips. as like, well, the regime, is, they, they've killed more than that. It's not just the executions. We have a drug, drug epidemic. We have uh, a poverty epidemic that's happening in Iran. Uh, kids in Iran that are young as seven years old are sleeping on boxes in the streets of Tehran and in smaller towns. Um, we have uh, a inflation rate that is so catastrophic right now. People can't even buy rice or bread. Um, they're trying to put a uh, moratorium on pasta because of uh, the economy. Uh, but here's the thing, Catherine. Um, all of this is what I call the, the boiling water frog method. You keep boiling the water, that frog's going to come out. It's going to get too hot. And for this regime, they have turned it up a notch. They have executed. They have uh, done oppression. They have arrested people. They have forced people to comply under this Islamic dictatorship. But the youth of Iran, the soul of our future of this country, um, are not buying into the bullshit anymore. They don't care. They do, they do not care about Khamenei, they don't care about religion. Uh, they want to live like the West. They want to live like America. They want to live like Europe. They see what's happening, how we're living. Now, we have issues in our own countries, but they see the the standard that the United States had on freedom of speech, mm -hmm. and they want that for their country. They want that for our country. Um, the diaspora is the other th catalyst. People like me are not stupid. You know, people, the regime thinks that, oh, people like me, Alex doesn't know anything about Iran. He doesn't speak Farsi. Um, he doesn't know his culture. But yet, I actually do speak Farsi, and I actually um, know the politics of Iranian politics. Um, people are waking up. They're waking up, and they are ready to fight back. Um, unfortunately, there will be more people who get arrested. Unfortunately, we're going to have compatriots who die. But guess what? That spirit's not going to be in vain anymore. Uh, the, the, the downfall of the green movement was that 
it was a downfall. It was an experiment that failed because we didn't have social media like that. Um, phone cam was just potato cam. Uh, the quality was so bad. But guess what? Now we have phones. We have cameras. We have technology. Um, you know, one of the things that I I am advocating for, I'm trying to talk to my friend Lex Friedman, who people don't know. He's friends with Elon Musk. You know, everyone's talking about Ukraine. Why don't you do a Starlink for Iran? If you do a Starlink system in Iran, the mullahs will literally die like rat poison. They will literally wither because that is their biggest threat is the fact that there's internet and people are still uploading it and sending it to distributors like me in the West, because that's how we get the message out. Catherine, uh, mm-hmm. the Iranian people are risking their lives by filming, by videoing. That's why white Wednesday for women is a big thing. Now women, when they see some kind of uh treachery by the um, morality police, the female police who uh, inspect people who are wearing the chador or not, uh, they film it. And and because of that, they either swap the camera or they'll, you know, um, they're afraid. They're afraid of the fact that's so volatile to their system that it's crumbling. And that's what's happening right now as we speak. Okay, talk talk to me about the opposition parties, um, you know, in in the diaspora. Because what what gives? Why is it that? Uh, and this is my impression. You don't see, you don't have like uh, clear front runners. In that, I feel that it's a little bit disjointed in terms of um, the outreach that they have towards the, the international community. And I'm not I'm not saying that, you know. Opposition parties in in Iran need to, you know, absolutely reach out to the international community uh, because they don't they don't need, you know, the international community to agree with what they want to do in their country because you know political self determination is a thing. Um, that said, you can't exist in a vacuum. You have to, you know, uh, make others understand what is it that you're about uh, in order for them to relate to your struggles. Um, and and agree, you know, um, that it would be in the interest of the international community to actually support the opposition, you know, parties. You know, regardless, monarchists uh, and I see it, it, it doesn't really matter. But you know, that people need to pick and choose, you know, who they want to support. But at the end of the day, you know, they should agree that the regime needs to go. So why is it that not, in my mind, not enough is being done in terms of number one, trying to you know have some form of a coalition because everyone again agrees that the regime needs to go um, and maybe come to the conclusion that, you know, even if they disagree in terms of what institution they want to put instead of the regime, um, that until the regime is gone, it would be a good idea to actually kind of rally, you know, their respective forces uh, and to then put it to the people to decide what is it that they want. What, why you know, is it that, that it's not, I'm not, I may be wrong again, because uh, I'm not privy to all the conversation happening, you know, behind closed doors. But why is it that I have this impression of, you know, things being a bit disjointed, not well thought out in terms of global outreach, in terms of how do we build bridges between, you know, the many opposition parties to reach a goal that they all share? which is to get rid of the Ayatollahs? You know, Catherine, that's a good question. And <laughs> that is a question. I know it is. <laughs> that is a question that, that is the number, that is the million dollar question. In my interpretation, look, I don't, 
to me, I work for an organization and I'm not in it. I'm just supporting them. Uh, they are called the Constitutionalist Party of Iran, CPI. We have that opposition group. We have another opposition group that literally believes in uh, uh, the crown prince being an absolute ruler. Um, but the organization I work for is, you know, believes in a secular parliamentarian democracy. You know, the crown prince being ceremonial and mm-hmm. a prime minister, which I believe in because that is what people want is a secular regime. Then you have obviously the National Iranian Congress, or that's run by Amir Fakhravar. Then you have, and I don't even call them opposition; they're terrorists. But then you have the MEK, which no, let, let's not. Let's. I don't. I don't want to give airtime to those guys. Um, okay, they for sure. Onto onto the world, so they they don't. Of course, they're not a party. They don't. They don't have a say in what happens in Iran. Um, it's um no. I, okay, I just. No, I really don't sure. like to advertise for them. I just. I have so such a profound disdain for them and, and, and what they advocate that I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. No. So, I mean, look, they, (laughs) so we have those opposition parties. Uh, The problem is this. Um, There is people who want a Republic like the United States model. There are people like Fakhravar who want a federalist system. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are people like me who want a, similar system like what's what you see in spain that is a good example of what i advocate for it is a complicated matter because a lot of people think going back to the pahlavia style of government is uh, is degrading you know it's uh it's um they don't want to go back to the same thing a lot some iranians think okay well we got rid of the the monarchy now we want to bring it back Mm -hmm. so what do you want hang on hang on on. why is it because bringing back i mean the way i look at it if if iran iranians decided to go back to to the monarchy by the way the monarchy would not would not look like it was under the shah because obviously time has passed and things change um so it wouldn't be going back to the same it would be, in my mind, you know, um, going back to a tradition and I think a certain legitimacy that might be useful in healing some of the wounds of, of Iranians in that they would be given back, you know, their history in a way. Uh, and then they could decide to formulate, you know, the democracy uh, and the institution however they see fit. But under the gaze of, you know, the person who does represent um, a tradition that you can't just, you know, excise from the history books. That, that's how I look at it. Absolutely. And no, I agree with you. I mean, here's the problem, though. You have Iranians who are stuck in the past who want that same kind of regime back. You have a new generation who wants an actual secular republic. You have some who want to uh, have a federalist system like the United States. They want state rights, local government, and then the federal. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is we're not the United States. The United States is a huge country. We have 50 states for a reason. Um, Iran needs to be, in my opinion, a secular parliamentarian democracy. It needs to be run by a prime minister and in the crown prince should be ceremonial and the crown prince should be part of the government. He should endorse who becomes the leader of a free Iran. And 
I even advocate for equality. Why do I say that? Iran has a lot of different groups. It's not Mm -hmm. just Persians. We have Kurds. We have Turks. We have Baluch. We have uh, Manzandarian. We have uh, Khorasan Turks. We have Lures, Bakhtiaris. This, the system that this organization, the CPI that I am happily um, supporting right now, they advocate for that. We we advocate for a parliamentarian style regime that benefits everybody. And the Constitution, Catherine, would have to be rigorously vetted. Would have to be. There's going to be so many amendments added to it that I want to see other people like the Fakhravars have part in it. I want to see a competition of what people want. We want to see a competition of different parties. You know. And I hate to say it, I would love to see the communists come in. If they want, if they think they can do something for Iran and have a piece of the pie, let them come in. That's what democracy is all about. And to me, the crown prince, a lot of people, they say he's weak. They want to say that he's nothing like his dad. Well, look, the times have changed. It's 2022. This is not the 70s. Um, Iran will still stay legitimate. Uh, we will have our identity back. We will have that monarchy back in the sense that the empire is back. It's a phoenix um, that's risen from the ashes. Iran is a coup d'etat right now, Catherine. Mm-hmm. And oh, the problem- I've, been, I've been saying this for a while, too. Absolutely. For 44 years. Not job for saying that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for 44 years, we're, we have been living in occupation. You know, uh, the Palestinians scream occupation when they talk about the IP conflict in Israel. No, this is the real occupation. Uh, they, when the, when the mullahs took over, they wanted to ransack the tomb of Cyrus and that they got met with, with such, uh, in a way, that's how Iranians need to be now is how they felt back in the eighties when they tried to destroy the tomb of Cyrus, our, our founder of our, of our country, of our culture. The reason oppositions cannot get along is this. It's, they don't know how to govern and they don't know what's best. We can't agree on fundamentals of politics. And because of that, we're arguing with each other. There are people who want the Shah's the king. There are people mm-hmm. who want a republic. There are people who want a federation. There are people like me who want the, the crown prince, you know, Reza Shah II, as a, as, as, as a legitimate cer- ceremonial head and bring back true secular parliamentarian democracy. And I think that's the way it's going to work for Iran. Iran is a complex country. It's an old and ancient country. And people um, of different faiths, different cultures, um, live in this beautiful country. And I firmly believe that that is the way that's going to solve as best. And the thing that I want to bring up, Catherine, as to why the opposition cannot get along is because you got people who are minorities. You know, I'm Kurdish, okay? But I call myself Iranian. I'm proud of that. the other aspect to it is that people want to cut our country into pieces. They want to single-handedly uh, think that the best way to solve the conflict in Iran is to literally give all the minorities a piece of land and destroying it. They, they, you know, in some circles, even in the Israeli community, they said that Iran's like the Soviet Union right now. But what they don't understand is that we've been free for thousands and thousands of years. We've had people come in who are bad. We got rid of them. We've had amazing kings, but that is what Iran is all about. Iran is not a country that you can just cut into pieces. And that's the other problem. 
there's some people who who are supposed opposition who believe that minorities should get their own little enclave, and I, I I don't agree with that. You know, we are all Iranian, but that's the problem: is opposition cannot get along on the fundamentals of what they want. You know, Fakhrovar wants a federalist system. I want a parliamentarian system, but yet I am not going to go attack him because he's got a following. You know, mm. I am not going to go in and say he's wrong because, okay, there's a lot of people who think that he's a legitimate uh, leader. Okay. So show us, what would you do? There needs to be dialogue. There needs to be discussion. There needs I agree to- with you, but I think it would be more useful to have that dialogue once the revolution happens. So it, it, it would make sense my mind to kind of join forces and agree to disagree for now, but understand that you have one common enemy that is currently sitting on top of Iran. Um, so you might want to liberate the people and then, you know, ha- have that fight, you know, um, just get rid of them first and then, you know, argue all day, every day if you have to until you find a solution. But I, I, I don't quite understand the logic of arguing about what happens after the revolution if you're not concentrating on actually enacting the revolution. No, I mean, look, I agree with you again. <laughs> um, that is a frustration I've had for years. Um, mm. That is a frustration I've had with, uh, I don't want to say older people, but people who, who are stuck in the past. This is not the past anymore. This is 2022, and we're already halfway there. It's going to be a new generation. We need to network. We need to start counteracting the narrative we need to fight the on the machine that is the regime we need to fight people like nyack we need to fight people like statecraft uh quincy institute um and crisis group because the problem is is simple these people run the regime they say it in such a way they go to the colleges they, they get funding from different lobbyist groups here in the united states um that are democrats and you know, establishment Republicans. But the problem is, is that people don't think that we're a threat. They don't think that we're legitimately serious. And that is why, again, CPI, the Constitutionalist Party of Iran, is actually talking to all opposition as we speak right now. Um, Currently on Clubhouse, currently on, uh, you know, the media, Twitter. That is why I wanted to join their forces, because they believe in the vision that's going to benefit everybody. It's going to benefit the future of Iran. You know, Fakhrabar, we don't know. We don't know. He's got a following. He's doing the right stuff, but we don't know. Well, I think I think he's making like some serious headway. I mean, in terms of yeah, absolutely, yeah. He's pushing, he's, he's... pushing to. Um, I think he's being very clever in the way that he's you know he's playing social media, utilizing you know uh, mainstream media, uh, networking. Um, you know, he's. I think that the global outreach is not just there yet. Uh, but I could see that he's um, he definitely understands how the game is being played, for sure. Um, and I think he's actually, of all the opposition parties, I think he's, he's well ahead of everybody. Yeah. I mean, look, when you have the funding, when you have the social media, mm-hmm. of course. And that's why I say times yeah. have changed. It, you know, social media is the new weapon to getting rid of these uh, molas. Um, social media, everybody, the new generation is on social media. There's no such thing as mainstream media. There's no such thing as uh, newspaper. It, that stuff is dying. It's a dying breed. We got to come together and we got to use technology to our advantage. We got to be our own journalists. And 
you know, Catherine, I've told you this and I'll say it on here. You know, I have ambitions too. I want to be prime minister one day. Um, I have a vision that single-handedly makes Iranians nervous, but it also makes them agree that there needs to be new change. There needs to be a new blood, you know, new blood of new talent to lead the country into fruition. And I think that's, that's the big catalyst of this all is that Iran, it's time to wake up that Mm -hmm. Iran is heading into a pre-revolution state. The people are suffering. Oh, I think we're already in it, if I'm honest with you. Do you know what's quite funny? Is that I remember back in 2011 when everybody was screaming, you know, the Arab Spring is a democratic movement. And, you know, uh, everybody jumped on that bandwagon, not realizing that actually it wasn't. Not really. Uh, That people, again, I think were kind of played um, because, you know, certain powers were playing regime change under the cover of a revolution. And it was a a failed experiment, Um, you know, anyway. But I, ha- I have this, this sentiment that what is actually going on in Iran right now in terms of, you know, the protest um, is actually the, you know, the real Arab Spring in a way. And I mean, I, I make the comparison to, uh, you know, to the French Revolution, but I could see a lot of similarities in the way that the revolutionary thought is being mapped out and enacted in Iran. Um, in that, again, I think you've been, you know, the French were so traumatized by you know, the the power that the church, the church had over the state and the fact that the king at the time was an absolute monarch that was basically the, almost the representative, um, he was, you know, appointed by God. That's what, you know, that, that was the institution was saying. So people got, you know, had complete PTSD when it came to the church and decided to become very, very secular. Um, and I have I have this thing when I look at Iran and what is going on that you're almost mapping yourself out on the, on, on the, um, the French Revolution and that you you are currently undergoing the, you know, enlightenment years as far as the Middle East is concerned, which is quite interesting um, because Iran might, you know, end up leading the show in terms of, you know, the the need for secularism and, and the separation of church and power and state. Um, that's how I look at it. And I think it's fascinating to, to uh, you know, to think that it would happen in the very place that saw the most brutal of religious regime. You know, Catherine, the 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 methodology you brought up is very amazing because I don't even call it the Arab Spring. I call it the Iranian Spring. I called it that for years. You know, um, what we're seeing is the new generation taking charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're see- what we're seeing right now is exactly what I just stated: social media at work. Um, what I've been doing for years now, I've been doing this for a long time, is I've, I call myself a distributor. I'm someone who gets the videos and the pictures from the Patriots inside Iran currently. And obviously, you know, I have very good sources, but um, we I have people inside who are forced to conscript in the military who are now, you know, they hate the regime, but they have to do it for their families to survive. Again, survival is a must in that godforsaken country right now under that dictatorship. But because of that, the regime is getting very nervous. The regime is getting very scared. When you start having civil societies, and this is the thing I love about my country, is that our civil societies is unlike any in the Middle East. We actually have a organized uh, civil societies, you know. When you start messing with the bazaars, when you start messing with teachers' wages, when you start messing with uh, hospital workers, 
Um, we can't even forget that right now, um, in Iran, we had a COVID, COVID genocide is what I call it. Um, the hospital workers have not forgotten about that. Um, when you have laborers who can't even make ends meet, when you have, uh, mom and pop stores who have to shut their stores because they're under these, uh, brutal quotas now that they can't get pasta or rice out, um, People start coming together for the same thing. The economy is the lifeblood of the country. And for 17 years now, the economy has gone down the toilet. And now that the exchange rates, which are always unpredictable, when you see that the dollar is 335,000 tomans to one U.S. dollar, um, and under the Shah, it was $7. It was uh, seven tomans. Now what you're seeing is the frustration. It's the adulation of, of a 44 year occupation. Um, being people being told, do not go protest because you're going to get killed. Uh, that, that thinking of semantics of, okay, well, if I go protest, my life's going to get taken. What is the purpose? I think that, I think Iranians, if they listen to this episode, need to understand that in the diaspora, we are with them. We are their breath. Um, you know, we have to be the ones to speak for them because unfortunately, um, they have their phones and they have VPNs and that's it. And, and, and they give it to people like me and various others to pro to, to broadcast what's going on. And, you know, people always tell me, well, I don't see it in the news. It's because they do that on purpose. They blanket the censorship because they don't want to see Iran regime fall apart because look, look, I mean, there are countries right now who want to do business with the dictatorship. Uh, there are organizations like the United Nations who give the regime the women's rights, uh, <laughs> women's rights uh, portion of the UN. I mean, my God, it is disgusting um, what these uh, European countries and the Democrats have done and, and, and the uh, warmongering uh, establishment Republicans in this country, the U.S. But, when the will of the Iranian people is against the wall, Catherine, when you start messing with life and the children die because of starvation, you will see a, a you know, and in our, in our real flag, why are we called the lion? It's not just a coat of arms. It's because Iranian spirit is with the lion. When the lion gets wounded, when the lion is attacked and is about to lash out, it's going to lash out with a ferocious bite. And that's what's happening in Iran is that we have been put to the wall for the last time. Um, you have destroyed our country environmentally. You have destroyed our country financially. You have given resources to people in other countries like Palestine and Lebanon, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. But yet you, you bereaved your own people. We have not forgotten that. For 44 years, this has been a tendency. But now, because of technology, because of um, social media, because of education, and education because they didn't close the internet 20 years ago, Iranians are not stupid people. We are not stupid, and we are very brave. And who you're seeing out in those protests right now are the future of Iran, the future leaders, the future politicians, the future uh, doctors, lawyers, nurses, uh, workers, um, uh, factory workers, oil workers, police officers, 
that is who's out in the street when I see the protests. It's not, oh, it's just an Ahmaz, it's just a minor. No, it's all Iranians. And the teachers showed that they will not stop. And if they don't give their wages, it will be a revolution. That's why we are now in the pre-revolutionary stage. Yeah, I think we're already there. I mean, I could, I could see it, but I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to, you know, scream victory too early because it's we are, it's the very early days. But I, I can see it. No, I mean, I mean, look, I'm not going to see victory until they start. And I hate saying this because I'm not politically correct, but the only the when you start seeing people get shot at. When the blood gets spilled and people start attacking the Basijis, people start burning stuff to the ground. When people start attacking the mosques, attacking the banners of Khamenei and ransacking the clergy's Mm. most holiest things, which is their spotlight and their media, then and only then you will see them literally lose their mind because they are trying very hard to shut the Internet down. But guess what? They can't. They can, and even if they censor it, we got we got patriots inside the country who are hacking. Um, like I said, times have changed. It's not all about Molotov cocktails and fists. It's all about technology too. Mm-hmm. And when you start when you start using the infrastructure around you to your advantage, and start making the clergy look at what they are, and when people like me get and spread it to the masses, they're in deep shit. But I'm not screaming victory. I'm saying it's about time they wake up. It's about time that the Phoenix, the lion has awakened. And because of that, I am very optimistic and I am very proud of my people. The ones who are in the streets who are lighting the tires on fire, the ones who are literally throwing uh, Molotov cocktails at the police cars right now. uh, That is a sign that people are done. Uh, When the economy is done, um, what, what what's the purpose to live anymore when you can't even buy loaves of bread? Um, that's it. You know, you got to come out to the streets. And I think that's what's going to happen. But unfortunately, it will not be picked up by the mainstream press in the United States or even Europe. They will try to blanket it. But at the same time, does it really matter? Not really. Because, you know, as usual, no. to, you know, anyway, look, when it comes to the media, they're always kind of uh, lagging. Uh, when it comes to you know to coverage and actually picking up on on true you know popular events i mean they're not you know because they have you know they they have to stick to their own narrative and they're not really interested about what happens you know beyond that so in my mind they're going to be lagging and they're going to you know catch that train a bit late but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day um you know iranians will control the narrative so whether or not media pay attention to that for me, is kind of beside, beside the point. It's not, I mean, I don't think that Iranians need, you know, media attention or coverage to, uh, you know, to do what it is that they need to do. They will do it regardless. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, we're going we're gonna to get rid of the regime regardless of who supports us or not. Mm. Whether you know that's- what, would be, what would be interesting in my mind would be to, uh, you know, for an opposition leader to kind of come out. I think it would be, now would be a good time. Um, and kind of embolden the people and give them not just a vision, but hope that they can. I think it's down to this, you know, maybe like some kind of an open letter to the Iranian people to say that, you know, they they are the architect of their future and that, you know, power is ultimately in their hands. Do you know, we have this saying in in France, um, it's, I mean, we say it in Latin, uh, vox populi vox dei, in that the the voice of the people is the voice of God. 
um, in reference to, you know, no government, no regime, no institution can actually hold without this, you know, contract that they that they make with the people saying, if you, you know, we can only operate if you obey us and you, you know, bow to the authority that is the state. Uh, and I think that it's time for Iranians to kind of wake up and understand that true power is actually with them, not with the regime. It's the power of the people, Catherine. And uh, like I said, they have, they have unleashed a beast that's now awakening. And now that there are, it's happening in Avaz. And why do I say Avaz is so prevalent? Avaz is a very, very strong city. It's always been strong. Uh, it was the first city that did the revolution uh, back in 79. And now you see the, the, the people of Ahvaz are rising up. Shiraz is now protesting. Shiraz is the third largest city in Iran. Um, and, 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 and the other city, that's the, 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 these are the petrochemical workers are now protesting. And, and that's in Tabriz. And Tabriz is the second biggest city in Iran. That is huge. What you're about to see, Catherine, is a domino effect. It starts. It always starts in the rural part of Iran, and then it works its way to the major cities. But that's yeah. very true. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. And I think by the time it gets to Tehran, it's over. If it gets to Tehran, if it, if 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 the regime doesn't destroy the uprising, if it gets to Tehran, it will it will literally be over. Well, it, not necessarily, because here's the thing: they could have Tehran. If Tabriz starts rioting, if Ahwaz that started the rioting, if. Uh, Bandar Abbas, Abadan, if the whole southeast starts rioting, and then my hometown starts rioting, and Tabriz starts rioting, it's game over. And, and, and you know, the regime is not the U.S. military, but they are thin. But here's, here's what I'm afraid of, Catherine. I'm afraid that they'll use the proxy forces to come into Iran and shoot at us. Um, they did that in the Isfahan massacre, as I call it. The, the, the... What do you mean by proxy forces? So when last year, during Black Friday in November last year, 2021, we had the Isfahan protest that was in the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. um, this, the regime did not just send Basijis to start shooting. They also sent their uh, proxy forces, the Fatimun Brigade, and their Afghans who live in Iran, who are Shia Muslims. I see. And they, they sent them and they started shooting. What I'm afraid of is that if the Basijis cannot control it, if the IRGC is so thinned out because of what's going on with Israel, uh, I'm afraid that Hezbollah or, uh, you know, and Taliban or even uh, these militias will start coming in from other countries and start shooting at us, the, the people of our own country. And the other and the other aspect is what is China? What is Russia going to do? Because, you know, essentially China and Russia has colonized Iran um, for their own interest. What 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 would Russia do? You know, the, right well, now. Well, I think that Russia right now is quite busy with Ukraine. Right. So would you imagine right. that? You know, that that might be the opportunity that you were waiting for. Just like absolutely, that's exactly what I was going to say. This is the opportunity now. China is too focused on Taiwan and Hong Kong, um, but I think now is the time that we wake up, and 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 the, the beast has been awakened, and the beast has been awakened in a sense that now is the time to really fight. And uh, these people are not God. Um, they are far from being godly. Uh, they have used religion to twist their own narrative, and people are not buying the crap anymore. And that's exactly what it is. So we are in the pre-revolutionary state. I'm not going to say victory, 
but I will say that uh, the economy and the factor into that is what led to the Aban uh, riots, and that that was a hundred cities that were protesting for over three months. So uh, it has begun. I'll just put it at that. It has begun, and I'm very happy to see my people rising. So I'll, I'll put that in there. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap up because, I'd, um, you know, I'd, I don't usually want to go over an hour because I, I know that people's attention span kind of like tends to wane after that. Um, but it was a fascinating um, hour with you, uh, Alex. Thank you so much, because uh, I don't think that we talk enough about, you know, Iran's opposition parties, you know, their structure um, and, and also what is happening inside of Iran. Because, again, like you mentioned, mainstream media is kind of missing the mark on this. Um, you know, and I think I think it's a it's a voluntary tactic. I think they don't want to talk about it because then it would it would kind of force people to ask the right questions. And, you know, God forbid um, they ask the right questions, because then people might realize um, that actually this revolution wasn't one, number one. And number two, that the reason why, you know, they have survived 44 years is because maybe there's um, there's a cabal running the show from behind that is actually allowing them to because, uh Let's just, just fool ourselves into into thinking that you know those mullahs are smart enough to actually run a country without some outside help. Without fail, they're getting outside help, and you know we're colonized from Russia and China, and it is a cabal. It is a network of people who do not want to see us uh, prosper. They're afraid of that. They're afraid of a free and democratic Iran. And uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It was truly an honor. And I hope people listen to this and, and send it to the monks themselves and know that uh, the people of Iran are going to be celebrating and uh, it's going to be Javid Shah. So yeah, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Alex. And yeah, no, uh, I truly hope that Iranians will, um, you know, will get the future that they want and um, the one that they deserve. So yeah, let's hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.